Okay, now if you've got a Bible, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 14. We are in a series called Jesus Stories, and we're looking through the summer at different stories, uh, parables Jesus tells. Now, the thing you need to know about parables is normally in the parable, Jesus is making one main point. Okay? So, uh, that's what the parables are often like, but we're going to look at one that doesn't really look like a parable, and it's in Luke 14, and we're going to read from uh, verse 1, and it's going to come up on the screen. Uh, if, you, if you haven't got a Bible, it's going to come up. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So they had all sorts of rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you had a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then Jesus said to the host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, like I said, this parable doesn't really look like a parable to begin with. Okay? It looks like Jesus is giving just a bit of kind of like social advice. You know, how to not embarrass yourselves at parties, the Ten Commandments of Social Engagements, the event management, Jesus style. That's what it looks like. And sometimes people want a Jesus who's going to give them social advice. Sometimes we'd like to have Jesus give us good advice about how to make our lives better. But Jesus doesn't come to make our lives better or to give us good advice, although the gospel actually, uh, the implications of the gospel are incredibly good advice in our lives. Jesus doesn't come. Jesus comes to lay his life down so that we can do the same. So that, and he says if we follow him, we will find a new life. So Jesus, when he tells his stories, this is not just nice advice. He's not really telling a story about mealtimes. He's telling a story about something else. Now I want you to picture the scene. Jesus has been invited to a Pharisee's house, a prominent Pharisee. In other words, one of the teachers of the law. And the implication of the story is they've invited Jesus really to catch him out. In fact, this happens again and again in the Gospels. And it never goes very well for the Pharisees, actually, these moments. They, you'd think by now they'd have worked this one out. Don't invite Jesus round just to catch him out. Because they get him round, and some of the commentators and scholars think that actually they plant this guy who's not very well in the midst of the moment to see what Jesus will do. Will he break the law? Will he heal the guy? How will he handle this moment? And Jesus, uh, it says, they're watching him. But what you discover in the story is Jesus is watching them. 
Jesus is observing something about what happens because they've got this mealtime, he's got a nice dinner, and he watches as people come in the room. And basically, people come around and they jostle for the best positions in the seats at the table. So Jesus is watching them, he perceives what's happening in the room, and then he tells a story. Guess what he tells a story about? He tells a story about a meal where people come in and jostle for positions at the table. So this is like, this is not subtle, okay? Yeah, this is, this is so uh, we were at a wedding yesterday, and there's a top table, and this would be like if we'd gone to the wedding, and I was speaking at the wedding, let's say I'm speaking at the reception, and I observe people coming into the reception and pushing their way through and changing their name positions and basically putting themselves on the top table even though they're not part of the family, and then I get up to do a speech about people who jostle and put their names on the top table, and I expose all these people. That's what Jesus is doing. He's not telling a subtle story. Okay? The Pharisee, the guy, you know, he's probably there thinking, why did I invite him? Jesus tells a story about people jostling for position and taking the best seats in the room. Jesus says, when you are invited to a wedding or a special function, don't place yourself on the top table. But deliberately, he says, choose the lowest seats. The cheap seats, if you like. The seats where you attract the least attention. And then if you are asked to move up, great. But don't make moving up your aim. And when you throw a party, change his direction at some point and talk to the guy who hosts the party. He goes, when you throw a party, don't invite all your friends, but invite all the people who would never normally be invited. Invite the poor. Promote others. What is Jesus doing when he tells this kind of story? Here's what he's doing. Jesus is teaching them about significance. He's teaching them about greatness. He's teaching them about his kingdom and about what counts and what doesn't count. You see, our culture teaches us, doesn't it? It teaches us this all the time, sometimes just you know, subliminally, sometimes very overtly, that significance and greatness, if you like, a life well-lived, looks like this. It looks like prestige. It looks like fame. It looks like recognition and platform. That your life really counts when you are acknowledged and renowned and recognized. Life counts when you reach that stage. Therefore, the product in our own hearts is you look after number one, you concentrate on your own fulfillment, your own advancement, and your own happiness. But Jesus says... That's what your culture teaches you. But Jesus says, actually, if if that's your aim, you will miss your life. Don't aspire for that, Jesus says. Don't make being number one the goal of your life. Don't make the seat, if you like, on the top table your goal. Don't be fooled into thinking that if you make it to the top table, you've somehow arrived. Instead, Jesus says, deliberately adopt a more humble mindset like intentionally choose to promote others, to care for others, and to help others. It is, if you like, completely countercultural in their day and in ours. And it is therefore, uh, for us, completely counterintuitive. Jesus is teaching that his kingdom, if you like, is upside down. What the world considers to be great, Jesus is saying, no, 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 it works the other way around. You want to promote yourselves. Jesus is saying, you need to demote yourselves. You need to put yourselves in a more humble place. Jesus says later on, I didn't come, you know, I came to serve, not to be served. So he's saying, my kingdom is upside down. 
Now, it's a nice story, isn't it? You think, okay, if I go to a wedding, I'm not going to put myself on the top table. I'll sit in the seat they give me to. And I'll make sure I am actually invited to that reception. Yeah? You don't want to be the one who was invited to the service and the party at the end, but you turn up for the reception in the middle that you were never invited for. You don't want to be that person, okay? It is a nice story, but there's a real problem with the story. The real problem with the parable is this. It's incredibly hard to do it. That's the problem. The problem is, the parable is almost impossible to live out, left to our own devices. Because we like the top table. I remember years ago, I studied history at university. I don't know why I studied history, but I did. <laughs> Incredibly vocational choice. Excellent. Okay. No, it was all right. I, no, it's good, Sam, honestly. Okay. Anyway, at my university, they, um, I was very fortunate to go, and they did these uh, meals in our halls of residence where every so often they'd like, like a kind of formal meal, a special one. And for some reason, on one of these occasions, I got invited onto the top, onto the top table. And the top table was lifted a little higher than all the other tables. You could, like, look down on everybody else in the hall. I can't remember if the food was better, but for the sake of this morning, I'm going to say it was better. And you get to invite someone. So I invited the, the kind of guy who led our department, like this professor who was a really nice guy, and he came and we sat there. The top table is quite a nice place to be. We like the top table. We like... The acknowledgement. Even those of us who appear to be very humble, secretly inside our hearts, we like to be acknowledged. We like the top table. And ever since, if you like, the Garden of Eden, ever since Adam and Eve fell, we've wanted and liked the top table. We've basically wanted God's spot, if in other words. That's really what was behind sin breaking into Genesis and breaking into the Garden is a desire to take God's place, which has been kind of in us ever since. So Adam and Eve fall, basically because the serpent comes and says, did God really say that? And they say, well, do you know what? You know, you can eat everything, but just not from that tree. And they decide, actually, we're going to choose where we can eat. Thank you. What are they doing? They're saying, we'd like to make our own rules. We'd like to decide for ourselves what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. We would like to decide for ourselves what we can eat and what we can't eat. We would like to decide for ourselves what's like okay and what's off limits. In other words, Adam and Eve decide, we would like to play God now. Thank you. In fact, the serpent says to them, you know, if you eat that, you're going to become like him. So it's all wrapped up in this desire. Do you know what? Actually, I'd really like a higher seat. I would really like the seat at the top table. Thank you very much. And ever since Eden, ever since sin has permeated the very fabric of our DNA, we have wanted the top seat. Left to ourselves, we tend to want to push through the crowds and find our way eventually, some of us more publicly, some of us more overtly, some of us more quietly, but find ourselves to the seats of recognition. Left to ourselves, we tend to like to make it all about us. If we did a little diagnostic of what we think about, most of us would have to confess at some point that we think a lot about ourselves. We think a lot about our own fulfillment, our own future, our own promotion. And that's why there's a problem with the parable, because it's incredibly hard to do it. Jesus says, deliberately choose the lower seats. It is a completely upside-down kingdom. 
Okay, that's the bad news. The good news is this. Jesus' kingdom is not just upside down. It's inside out. It's not just upside down. It's inside out. Because left to ourselves, we like to find our way to the top table. The good news is, Jesus hasn't left us to ourselves. Jesus hasn't left us to our own devices. It's not just upside down, it's inside out. You see, Jesus comes to us. First of all, he teaches us. He says, this is what my kingdom looks like, Jesus says. And throughout the Gospels, you'll see him saying, this is how, you work. This is how money works. This is how relationships work. This is what my kingdom looks like. This is, what, this is what forgiveness looks like. And Jesus is saying, this is how it works. This is how it was all designed. This is how we made you. This is how it should work. And I'm coming to teach you about my kingdom. In other words, Jesus says, this is what it's like in my kingdom and how it should work and how it all fits together. It's, it's upside down to the world, the way the world teaches you. But it says, it's not just that. Jesus then comes to say to us, he says, and now I'm going to do my kingdom work inside you. I'm going to tell you and show you what my kingdom looks like. So this parable is, a, is like a display. This is what kingdom life looks like. Where people say, I'm going to promote someone else. I'm going to further the cause of someone else. But then he says, I'm going to do my kingdom work in you. I'm coming to you to change you, to grow you, to mature you, and to help you grow into the person I'm calling you to be. Now, Kings is a, a charismatic church. And if you know what that means, we believe in the Holy Spirit, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We believe God's here by his spirit. Okay? And I'm, I grew up into that. I'm a passionate believer in that. And I love that. Okay? But often what that means is charismatics or Pentecostals tend to therefore want the public supernatural miracle as a sign that God is here. Now, I'm, I'm with you to a point. But let me just say, the real miracle what takes place is when God takes someone who is like, in their very DNA, selfish, like me, and I would suggest probably you, and turns us into increasingly someone who wants to give our lives away. That's a miracle. So we're all for the public supernatural displays. If God wants to do that, we would love that more and more. But the real miracle of change often is what happens right inside us rather than what happens externally to us. Jesus says, this is what my kingdom looks like. And now, because you are completely incapable of doing this by yourselves, I'm going to come and do my kingdom work in you. And I'm going to change you inside out. So Ezekiel 36, just to give you just one passage on this, prophesied centuries before, Ezekiel says this, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you, and note this, move you to follow my decrees, and be careful to keep my laws. In other words, when Jesus comes to you, when you become a believer, when you give your life to him, you say, okay, I'm gonna, I believe you, I, 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 tr- I trust you, I, you know, forgive me. Jesus says, right, I'm now I'm going to put something new inside you. My spirit's coming to you, and I'm going to bring to birth a new person in you. And I will move you to follow from the inside out the decrees and the laws that I've always talked about in my kingdom. Because Jesus knows, left our own devices, we can't do any of this stuff. It's upside down. And Jesus says, it's inside out. 
And if you're a Christian here and you've given your life to Jesus, you start to realize things as his Holy Spirit starts to birth things in you. Let me give you a few things that you start to realize which affect your ability to not always want the top table, but to be happy to be demoted to the seats of lesser honor. Three or four things that you start to realize. Here's the first one. You realize this. It's not your party. See, when Jesus tells a story about a meal, he's obviously not talking about meals. He's talking about our lives and how we live our lives. And Jesus, what you realize is, as he starts to work on your heart is, it's not your party anyway. You're not the guest of honor. We start to realize that the universe was made by someone else for someone else. Yeah, one of the reasons why I think God gives us sleep, apart from the fact that it's like that's the way our, you know, our, our bodies are made, we need it, is that every day we're reminded that all this works without us. Yeah, you go to sleep, and amazingly, the whole thing sleeps working. And when we wake up, we kind of walk back into this slight kind of messiah complex where we think the world surrounds us and orbits around our ability to make things happen. And every night you go back to sleep and you wake up and you go, actually, all this happened without me. The sun goes down comes back up somewhere else in the world. Things keep orbiting. I always forget which one orbits around what. So that's why I'm not going to get into kind of real kind of close definitions on that. But it all happens without me. Because it wasn't made by me or specifically for me uniquely. And you realize it's not actually your party. You just get to be invited into it. Made by someone else, for someone else. In Martin Luther's words, you realize you have to let God be God. And you're not him. That's the first thing you realize. Here's another thing you realize. You realize that you should never have been allowed into the party in the first place. The more the Holy Spirit works in you, the more you start to realize, I shouldn't even be allowed in the party. When you have little kids, really little kids, you realize that you basically, in your house, and probably in other people's houses, you know, if you're a genuinely good person, you shouldn't unleash your kids and leave them unattended for too long. Okay? The reason is, is because they're little sinners. And <laughs> that's why Tim and Sarah ask you first, do you know what sin is? Okay? Of course they do. They're specialists at it, okay? As are we, okay? You should have high security cameras everywhere in your house if you have little kids, okay? Because they will wreak havoc in your house. Right? Left to their own devices, if you don't monitor them closely, they will destroy your house. Okay? <laughs> you know, whether they're making noise, it's all fine. When they go quiet, you have a real problem. Okay? <laughs> Truth is, left to our own devices, we'll wreak havoc. That's what we do. We don't like to admit it. It cuts right against our sense of pride and ego, but the truth is we don't do a good job of life on our own. In Matthew 7, Jesus tells a story, uh, which is probably one of my favorite stories, where he talks about two builders, one who builds a house on rock and one who builds a house on sand. By nature, we are all sand builders. That's why we like to decide where we're going to build our life. We want to decide how we're going to do it. We can construct a life, and it looks impressive for a while, but in the end, it will come collapsing down at some point. Because left to ourselves, we don't do a very good job of life. We were never designed to do a good job of our life 
on our own. We were always designed to circle around God and to live our lives in an orbit around him. We have habits we can't control. We make choices which hurt people and ourselves. We cycle around and around the same issues. And our pride basically destroys our ability to love people. So you realize as the Holy Spirit works in you, we shouldn't even be invited to this party. Somehow I got in. Somehow he allowed me in the room. But we shouldn't even be here. God should have judged us years ago, but the door's open for you. If you're a believer here, Jesus opened the door for you. By right, you should never be allowed in to his kingdom. But because of what he has done, he opens the door for you and me. So you realize, I should never be allowed in. You realize, it's not my party. I shouldn't have been allowed in. The third thing you realize is this. There is a guest of honor, and it's not me. There is a guest of honor at the party, but it's not me, and it's not you. But the really surprising thing about this guest of honor is he serves the tables. Jesus serves the tables. I read a really interesting thing the other day about a passage in Philippians. If, you're, you know, if you've been in church for a while, you may know this passage in Philippians 2. There's a, there's a passage in Philippians 2, which the, the early church, they reckon, uses like a hymn. And it talks about Jesus coming and how he empties himself and becomes like a servant. And I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to just pull out one word and just open something up for you, which I found really helpful when I read it. This is what Philippians 2 says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, that word being is the one we're going to come to, in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now that word being, you can translate in different ways, okay? depending on the context. It's kind of circumstantial. And often, if you've been around church for a while, often we translate that word being as in the sense of that Jesus comes and despite the fact he is God, in spite of the fact of who he is, he humbles himself and makes himself a servant. That would make sense to read it that way. So we read Philippians 2, okay, you know, Consider Jesus, who, despite the fact that he is fully God, he humbles himself and makes himself a servant. In other words, he lowers himself to position of a servant. But there's another way of translating that word being, which I found really helpful and quite fascinating. And that you translate, rather than despite, you translate it as because. So consider Jesus, who, because he is fully God, humbles himself becomes a servant. In other words, if you read Philippians 2 that way, what Philippians 2 is saying is, when Jesus comes to earth to serve people, he's not disguising who he is. He's revealing who he is. God is revealed fully in who Jesus is when he comes. In other words, God reveals that he is a serving, loving, humble God who comes to serve and win and go after lost people and bring them back, people who live in rebellion on his planet, he comes after us. And Jesus does this because of who he is in his very nature. In other words, Jesus reveals the sheer goodness of God. 
the phenomenal goodness of him towards me and you. He's not disguising something. He's revealing something. I shouldn't be allowed in. And yet he opens the door. He opens the door for me at a huge cost. The Father sends the Son. The Son lays down his life for us. And he does this. He comes to serve, not in spite of the fact that he is God, but because he is. You see, pride, this desire to be at the top table, is, if you like, birthed out of a sense of entitlement. I deserve this. I require this. I I should be there, given all the things I've done and who I am. Humility, however, is birthed out of a sense of gratitude. It's not my party. I get to be in the party with him. I'm invited in. The doors should have been closed to me because of my history. Yeah, he opens the doors. And he keeps the doors open for me, even though he could kick me out at any moment. But Jesus doesn't operate like that in my life. I'm invited in. He opened the door for me. Humility is birthed from a sense of gratitude. And right at the end of the parable, what's interesting, Jesus then turns his attention to the guy who threw the party in the first place. Now, by this point, if you're that guy, that Pharisee, you're thinking, I want this all over now. Jesus is humiliating everybody in the room. And then he looks at this guy and goes, now, when you throw a party, okay, when you do this, your job is not to invite all your mates who can pay you back and you can have a nice time furthering each other's causes. Your job is to open the doors to everybody else and get as many people in who could never come in by a right. That's your job. Jesus says. Now, it's interesting because I think we, in our culture, we worry a lot, men particularly, we worry a lot about our sense of significance. Like, what's my life about? How do I make a contribution? How do I, how do I make something that counts? How will anybody remember me when I'm gone? Yeah? We think about that, don't we? We wonder, can, you know, am I really doing what I should be doing? And that's a good question to ask. But on one level, Jesus has already answered it. Jesus said, a life of significance and a life of greatness looks like somebody who gives their life away, who is constantly looking to further the cause of other people in whatever context you're in, in whatever job you're in, whatever role you're in. The primary thing is not the job you're in. The primary is the role that you assume when you're in it. Your job is to further the cause, to help, to love, to be ambassadors for him, to further his kingdom. John Wesley's motto was this. John Wesley was um, the founder of the Methodist Church, said this. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, by all the ways you can, in all the places you can, and at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. I'll read it again. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, by all the ways you can, in all the places you can, and at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. See, my job and your part, job at the party is not to gorge ourselves. It's not to close the doors so we get more for ourselves, although that's tempting, right? Our job is to find seats for everybody else, to give your seat up, to give what you can away. And when we talk about this and we read a passage like that in a parable like that, we think, oh man, it sounds hard. It feels like an obligation. It feels like a chore. 
It feels like an ought. I ought to do this. But actually, it's not an obligation, Jesus is saying. This is like an invitation. Because you discover the more you do this, the more you serve, the more fulfillment there is. You find that in every act of giving away, there is a sense of receiving. See, God made you a certain way. He didn't make you and I to accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. He didn't make the universe to orbit around us. He built you and I in such a way that we were to give away our lives. And Jesus says, as you give away your lives, you'll find you find your life. It's upside down and it's inside out. Jesus says this in Matthew 16. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So he says, if you want to find what your life is meant to be about, give your life away again and again and again and again. Acts 20, Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, it's better. It's better, it's better, it's better, it's better, Jesus says. I'd love us to stand. We're going to pray. Maybe the band could come as well.